Why is Exodus considered one of the most important books of the Bible? Why is it so important to the history of the Jewish people? These are some of the questions we're going to be asking today on The Grain Offering. Spend some time in God's holy word Looking for a sign in God's holy word So let's start hearing those stories new and old From these two brothers, hot takes and fear that's cold They go together like pasta and meatballs They're undeterred, bringing you God's holy word So, Jeremy, welcome again to another episode of The Grain Offering. Today we're talking about Exodus. So, yeah, we <laughs> we finally get to the big dog, Moses. Yes, that's right, Moses. Big dog. <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy, what are we doing here? Why, why is this called The Grain Offering? So, um, we're drinking some brews. We're talking about the Hebrews. Mm. Um, and just... You're sharing theology over over a beer. Nice. Yeah. The 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 Hebrews are my favorite type of brew. All right, so Jeremy, what uh, what <laughs> beer have you chosen for uh, for Exodus today? All right, so I felt really called to um, choose Fat Tire. I thought it would be a great uh, pairing to the theology of Exodus. Sure. But, Just like um, for Genesis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But do not have a fat tire this time around. So today I will be sipping a, an Ankerstein lager. Mm. Put that up to not sponsored, but not sponsored yet. If you want to sponsor us, Ankerstein, <laughs> drop a comment in the section below. <laughs> Eat fat tire to it. Yeah, that's true. Maybe this pairs better with the theology of Exodus than fat tire does. We'll see. <laughs> Nice. And uh, today I have chosen uh, the uh, Belching Beaver Peanut Butter Milk Stout. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. Um, so I chose this one particularly because uh, the Israelites in their wilderness wandering and, and getting out of Egypt and stuff like that, God promises them that he's going to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So I thought a milk peanut stout. Peanut butter beer. Peanut butter beer. That's, uh, that's exactly what I thought. But so yeah, I have a milk stout. You have an anchor steam, and uh, it's that time, Jeremy. So let's uh, let's crack it open and get into it. Cheers! Boom! All right. So, Jeremy, like I said, today we're talking about Exodus, and uh, we talked a little bit about in our Genesis episodes, <laughs> multiple, um, yeah. that Exodus is actually one of the core uh, books of the Pentateuch, if not the core uh, of the oh, Pentateuch. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned last time something that I thought was really, really interesting, and you said that Genesis is more, almost like a, a prequel to Exodus uh, in, its, in its story and its structure and in its kind of importance, because 
um, yeah, Exodus is is the story of Israel uh, that is constantly uh, brought back to the Israelites' attention throughout the Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, you have uh, in the book of, of Kings, you have multiple prophets saying to Israel, like, remember who God is. Remember that God brought you out of the house of, of Pharaoh. Um, yeah. So this, this story, this Exodus story, this book is extremely important to the Israelites, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be kind to the foreigner as you were once foreigners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were once slaves in a foreign land. Right. 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 So uh, we left off in Genesis with Joseph and his family moving to Egypt uh, to avoid famine. And they, they start to, to multiply. They start to thrive. They start to fill uh, Egypt with a bunch of Hebrew babies. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you know, just that's how it goes. Um, so the very beginning of Exodus starts off with saying there came to uh, there came a Pharaoh who had forgotten what Joseph had done for mm-hmm. Egypt. And he looks around and he starts to say like, oh, there's a lot of Hebrews. They might pose a threat. So then they, he starts to, to persecute them and enslave them. And, and that's where we get the 400 years or so of Israelite slavery in Egypt. So um, let's do a quick overview and then we'll dive into some questions. How's that sound? Sounds good. All right. So um, according to my research, my extensive Googling, <laughs> I actually did consult seminary books, but yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so Google, right, right. Professor Google is very helpful in, in my research. Yeah. Um, so the the very first fact I'm, or fact I'm going to share with you uh, is actually whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what do you, you mean? Fact. Well. The reason I say that is because last time I brought this up, you were just like, well, I don't know if that's true. Or not. <laughs> and that is the authorship of Exodus. Ah. So it is commonly believed that Moses. Yes, that's right. Moses. Uh, himself is the author of Exodus. Um, although it gets a little tricky at the end of Exodus because Moses dies and it, the story goes on. Does he uh, die at the end of Exodus? Doesn't he? I don't think so. Oh. I could be wrong. That might. Mm, I think you're right. I think it's it's either Leviticus or Numbers that he. That anyway. The the, the point being, uh, <laughs> it's commonly assumed that Moses is the author of Exodus. Yeah. Um, it's it covers a period of about 120 years, uh, from the end of Israelite slavery to their entering into the Promised Land. So it's about 120 years, give or take, that this this covers. Um, and it's commonly thought that this book was written about 1400 BC. So again, this kind of lines up with where Genesis was, was written. Um, again, thinking that Moses is the author of all of the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. It makes sense then that this date is commonly thought of as the authorship of, right. of uh, Exodus. Now, Exodus has four main storylines. So Genesis had, had seven. Exodus has four main storylines. And, and when I say main storylines, I'm not saying like, you know, it starts here and ends here. The next one starts here and ends here. I mean, they, they all overlap, but they, there's four major story arcs. Yeah. Uh, like the, the A plot and a B plot in a musical. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, uh, think of it like, um, I'm going to use uh, <laughs> Avengers uh, as an example. Like, mm-hmm. you can follow 
you can watch all the Captain America uh, movies and follow Captain America's arc, but there's also Iron Man's arc and the Hulk's arc, and but they all overlap in the same story. So it's a it's a similar construction of of plot, I guess. Um, but anyway, the point being, there's four major uh, story arcs in the book of Exodus. You have the early life of Moses in chapters one through four. Uh, you have the plagues and the Exodus itself in chapters five through 15. Uh, you have the Red Sea and the giving of the law in chapters 16 through 24. And then finally, you have the instructions for the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 40. So you have this, this spans a, a lot of time and a lot of different things because where the Israelites are at the very beginning of Exodus is very different than where they are at the end of Exodus. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into it, shall we? So Jeremy, the very first question I have for you, the early life of Moses. Yes, that's right, Moses. Um, what do you know about the early life of Moses? That's not the question, I'm just, uh, just seeing what you think. Yeah. Uh, Moses is, is a baby who is uh, put into a basket and uh, left in some, some water. Mm -hmm. And then he's picked up by um, the, the princess of Egypt. Mm -hmm. He's like, hey, look at this baby. You know, I'll save it from living a life in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, and grows up uh as in a royal egyptian mm -hmm. um then he murders a dude and runs away <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty that's pretty accurate now here's the most important question before i even get to the question about the exodus itself the the most asked question that i've ever heard of 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 the exodus story and uh if you have an answer to this go ahead and submit it in the comments down below but the most important question I've ever heard for the book of Exodus, Jeremy, is, is the Prince of Egypt an accurate portrayal? <laughs> um, maybe, I don't know. Probably not, but sure, it could be. Right. Um, I can tell you one thing that is, it's not an accurate thing, um, is Moses was heck old when he came back to Egypt and like Prince of Egypt he's like this young strapping good looking dude <laughs> real good looking on that movie right oh yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. that's that's a whole subject unto itself <laughs> yeah. so, so go ahead go ahead I would just say this speaking directly to that um the Prince of Egypt one great movie mm -hmm. two probably think it's a greater movie because we grow up in like an evangelical Christian uh, yep. upbringing. Yep. Um, but like that said, I think, you know, I have uh, non-Christian friends who you still hold Prince of Egypt as a very good, good movie. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, what you see on screen, very, very different than what you read in the Bible. Oh, yeah. there, there are no uh, no chariot races between Ramses and, and Moses in the Bible. Wait, wait. <laughs> As young kids. I, I can't accept that. I can't accept that. No, sorry, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so yeah, highly exaggerated. Um, but also even just the, the storytelling. Um, there, the biblical author 
of Exodus omits certain details. And the omission of these details lead to very radical different understandings of what goes down mm. in the story. Mm -hmm. um, so there are many ways to read the Bible. Of course there are, but two that come to mind, especially with Moses. Yes, that's right. Moses. Um, being placed in a basket and um, found by Pharaoh's daughter. Mm -hmm. I think there are two big ways that you can, can read this one being um, Moses' mother making a big sacrifice in order to save her son. Right. Which is and, often one of the things that's emphasized. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and putting, putting hope and, and you know, all that good stuff toward God in an effort to save Moses' life. Right. Um, the interesting thing is that in the omission of certain details there are interpretations that allow it to be much more tactful than that. Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the Prince of Egypt um, picture, um, you see Moses placed in this basket and then floated down the river, avoiding boats and like fishing nets and crocodiles and all hippos. these things. And hippos. <laughs> and hippos. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see all this chaos going on and, and, and then Moses, after this chaos, gently floats into um, essentially the Pharaoh's daughter's bathtub. Right. Um, in the Nile. And it's like, oh, wow, Moses like got through so much chaos by the hand of God, which true, he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the story. Um, but in the biblical writing, you don't see that. Yeah. You just see Moses placed in the basket in um the reeds by the by the river yeah and then the next thing that happens is you immediately see pharaoh's daughter find moses mm -hmm. um and then by a quote strange twist of fate um in raising moses baby moses mm -hmm. pharaoh's daughter says get one of the hebrew women to breastfeed this child right and that right. Hebrew woman ends up being Moses's mom. Right. What a strange twist of fate. Right. Or, or a very tactful, intentional choice. Right. On, um, Moses's mother's part. Right. And I think it's worth mentioning too that for for anybody who hasn't read the Exodus narrative, the reason why uh, Moses's mom had to hide him in the reeds was because the Pharaoh's fear of the Hebrew people, he actually made a, uh, a decree that said, you know, go off and kill any Hebrew boy. I think it was two years or younger. Yeah. Um, because the idea being is if you kill off a generation of, of Hebrew men, Hebrew boys, then there will be a whole generation cut off uh, mm -hmm. from being able to procreate and, and continue the, the expansion of the Hebrew people. Right. Um, and that's kind of a common thread you see throughout the, the Bible as well, because that also happens with the birth of Jesus with King Herod. Right. So, so this idea that, that the people in power are, are fearful of the potential of the future is what put Moses's life in jeopardy. So that's why his mom had to hide him in the reeds in the first place. So she wasn't just giving him up. 
she was protecting him from this this royal right. decree. Now there is an irony in this, in that if you are a a dominant power of you know dominant political uh, military complex power, you'd imagine that if you are enslaving um, a group of people, cutting off a generation. Um, cuts off also a generation of potential slaves. Right. Right. It's a it's a calculated risk. Yeah. So when you think about this in terms of the the Exodus story, um, you can read it again in a number of ways, but you can read it as the Egyptians were one either that scared of the Hebrew population that was coming up mm -hmm. for fear of being overthrown or two, how stupid the Egyptians are for shooting themselves in the own, in their foot. Right. Which it's funny. You should bring that up because that actually what, what's happening later when Pharaoh finally releases Israel, yeah. he pursues them to the Red Sea because he's like, what have I done? I've gotten rid of my labor force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's the early life of Moses, and it actually ends with him, like you said, killing a guy and, and fleeing. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because something you touched upon is the fact that that Moses is a Hebrew, Hebrew. He's he's Jewish, mm -hmm. but he's raised as an Egyptian royal prince, or the prince of Egypt would have us think. <laughs> um, but the point being is he's raised in the Egyptian culture, so he's he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He you know, has chariot races with Ramses and, you know, all that. <laughs> but some hippos. Yeah, some hippos and stuff like that. But as That's the story goes, degrees. right, right. And then the, the hieroglyphs start talking and yeah, it's just, you know, you know, the Prince of Egypt is actually, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but the point being is, is that he is a, he's born Jewish. He's born a Hebrew, but he's raised in, in Egyptian culture. So he, he has this kind of not split personality, but he has this, there's this tension in, in who he is as a person. Right. And as the Exodus narrative goes, one day he sees an Egyptian soldier beating a Hebrew slave pretty brutally and something within him snaps or, or boils over or whatever you use to describe it. And he kills the Egyptian soldier and, and buries him in the sand. And my favorite part of this this story, um, because it's kind of dark, it's kind of like, whoa, that's that's a little. Ugh. Um, he buries him in the sand, and then the next day, two Hebrews are fighting, and Moses goes out and is just like, why are you guys fighting? Like, don't do that. And the Hebrews responds like, oh, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian soldier? <laughs> and Moses is like, uh, I'm out, <laughs> and then he flees uh, to the land of Midian, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah the <laughs> uh, again prince of egypt just flashing through my head <laughs> the big old song and dance with the sheep and the and the colorful tapestries oh yeah yeah what's the quality it's really good it's yeah. really good um so anyway getting back to the point the question uh for i have for moses's uh early life actually has to do with that murder of an egyptian and um the question is, is it easy to overlook Moses's murder of the Egyptian? I'm glad that this is your question because there's a lot to talk about in Good. Moses being murderer. 
Um, so your question is, is it easy to overlook? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think so. Is it right to overlook it? I don't know. Is it easy to overlook? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because not only do you have Moses in the Exodus story, we have Moses in the continuation of the Pentateuch. Um, you have Moses being referenced all throughout like the, like the New Testament mm -hmm. and, and just Jewish theology in general. Um, those mean, two being not connected. You know. Going back to what you said, Moses is the big dog. Yeah, Moses is the big dog. Um, so, and, and the farther along in the biblical narrative you get, the more rosy, uh, rosy colored the glasses become. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I agree because I think that that's something that we often do just in general uh, with, with historical figures. Like, I mean, look at the conversation now nationally about, you know, the founding fathers were, were upright, outstanding men that need to be revered and just like yeah but they also own slaves what's <laughs> our misogynistic racists as well right right so that's not to like say that you know we should ignore them and stuff like that it's just to remember the proper context that they lived in and to put their their stories into con into context but the point i'm trying to make is is that we do that with biblical characters as well because i mean look at um look at the book of first and second chronicles uh where first and second chronicles david and solomon come out looking like rock stars like they look like you know they're they're the the cream of the creme de la creme they're the top they're the like they're the the most holy people and yes david and and solomon were very righteous and very holy but they also screwed up a lot and they had a lot of really bad sin in their life but Chronicles is is not necessarily focusing on that. And again, once we get to Chronicles, we'll talk a little bit about that. But with Moses, the reason I asked this particular question is because I do think that Moses is such an integral character in the story of Israel. So the the question is, do we do we ignore some of his his flaws in order to uphold the importance of the story? Right. Right. You know, it, it's interesting. I don't know if this is going to be an answer or even kind of build off of what you just said. But, you know, in previous weeks, you know, we've talked about and I've shared that under a lot of scrutiny, the stories in the Bible, especially compared to other ancient Near Eastern texts, are not all that different. Right, right. But one of the key differences that can be found is that often, not all the time, but often your protagonists in other ancient Near Eastern literature are these larger than life characters mm -hmm. with a fatal flaw that eventually brings them down. Okay. Right. The biblical narrative more often than not counters that. 
basically with flawed people making bad choices ultimately showing how good God is. Right. And that's kind of a paradoxical uh, circle to jump into. Yeah. But you see that throughout, um, throughout the old Testament, you see it throughout the new Testament, um, you know, about God being glorified through the failings of his people. Right. Right. And it makes me think about the, um, the, the New Testament where it talks about, um, you know, in, in our weakness, uh, the strength of Christ is made known. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I think is, is evident uh, in the story of the Old Testament as well, where you have all these characters that are um, flawed, but God is using them to spite that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, because I think that one of the things we also need to remember about these these stories, about these characters, is that they are human, that they are flawed. Because I think that when we kind of, I don't know, if we if we ignore the bad parts of somebody's life and just uphold the the good, we kind of put them on a pedestal that it becomes more about who they are and less about how God used them. Right. So that's, yeah. 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 Um, okay. So as we move on from Moses's early life, we know that he flees to the land of Midian. Uh, we know that he finds some, some love there. He, uh, he becomes a shepherd and uh, he in, encounters this, this burning bush that is the, the Bible describes it as it being, um, it's, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah there's there's that god calls out to him uh the burning bush is where we get god's personal name for the first time um because moses basically god says you're gonna go free the egyptians and i'll be with you or yeah. you're gonna go free the hebrews and i'm gonna i'm gonna uh be with you and moses is like of the hebrews <laughs> right and moses is like i can't do that like i have a stutter i don't speak well i uh like i can't <laughs> And God's like, no, I'm going to go with you. Don't worry. Um, and then God's just like, you know what? Go. Stop wasting my time. You're, you're, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, um, he gets his marching orders from God. And uh, when Moses asks, who shall I say is sending me? Like, who, who will I tell the Israelites who's sending me? And God says, tell them I am. And that is where we get the Hebrew Yahweh or the, the, the really nerdy seminary word, uh, the Tetragrammaton. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Moses makes his way back to Egypt and then the plagues <laughs> happen, turning the Nile into to blood, uh, plague of locusts, plague of frogs, plague of livestock, plague of darkness, plague of hail, all, all the good stuff. Man, you can um, you can name those, but you can't name all of Joseph's brothers. <laughs> I would say that uh, it's easier to rem- to remember the trauma <laughs> than it is the 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 other stuff. Um, but one of the interesting things about these plagues is is that Moses 
does these plagues um, with, with his staff. And uh, some of them are replicated by the Egyptian magicians, but not all of them. <clears throat> so we finally get to these, these later plagues that it's very, very clear that God is, is enacting it. And we, we're not even going to cover uh, the, the deep symbolism of the plagues right. basically flying in the face of the Egyptian gods. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, tease that out a little bit before yeah. we just kind of brush away. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, the, the plagues of Israel or the plagues of Egypt that, that Moses enacts on, on, um, on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, um, they line up pretty well with well-known Egyptian gods. Like, for instance, the very first plague of turning the Nile into blood, the, the Nile River was considered a deity in, in the Egyptian uh, culture because when it would flood, it would bring uh, sediment into the fields and it would grow and it would provide Egypt with its with its food, with its crops. So the Egyptians worshiped the Nile, it's, it's ebbing and it's flowing as a deity. So when Moses uh, makes the, the Nile turn into blood, essentially what that's doing is God is saying, I am more powerful than this God. I have do dominion over this God. I have power and, and influence. And this, this other lesser God has no way of countering me yeah. um so you start to see that where with a lot of other uh, of the plagues like for instance the plague of livestock one of the the main egyptian gods is uh viewed as a a the head of a cow on the body of a human so the idea that god struck livestock was a, a direct attack on the egyptian pantheon so you see that a lot with the other plagues as well which is again another can of worms that we could get into in its own episode um but suffice it to say the the plagues are an attack an affront on the egyptian pantheon of gods now the interesting thing and this is where we're going to get to the question is after every plague it says that god hardens pharaoh's heart mm -hmm. so that he would not let the israelites go and to be honest, dude, I've had a real hard time with this set of passages um, because like for me, I'm just like, well, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? So Jeremy, I'm going to ask you, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, yeah. So um, in almost contrast to a good number of these questions, this is actually a question that the Bible accounts for. Um very directly um, God speaks for himself in this regard mm -hmm. um, so Exodus 14 4 I have it written right here wow oh, nice. um, by the way this isn't me prepping this is me finding this from a talk I gave <laughs> like pre-quarantine so a long time ago dude don't even worry about it I, I cannot tell you how many times I've reused notes or illustrations or stories or whatever for youth ministry yeah 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 so again the question is why did uh god harden pharaoh's heart yeah and straight up uh exodus 14 4 i will harden pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that i will gain glory for myself over pharaoh and all his army and the right. egyptians shall know that i am the lord and they did so mm. so narrative wise 
God gives a very clear purpose for hardening Pharaoh's heart, which is not just to save Israel, but to show the Egyptians that I am the Lord. I'm the one in charge here. Right, which goes back to what we were saying about the plagues being or showing power over the Egyptian pantheon. Mm -hmm. And the question right underneath the question that's being asked of why did God harden Pharaoh's heart is not why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because um, again, that's, that's accounted for. That's straight up listed in the Bible. Right. The question that we grapple with is how could God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. Not how does he, not why does he, but how could God? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do that. Yeah. That's a good point. And that is the harder theological question that is asked of Exodus, asked of violence in the Bible, asked of misogyny and um, racism in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, narrative wise and theology in a vacuum wise is, is maybe a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. The reason is because God can and, and God chooses to. Right, right. Um, you know, you see all the suffering in the book of Job, for instance, and God's response to Job's complaint of how could you let this happen to me? God's response is essentially, who are you to ask me that? Yeah. Why do you think that, that <laughs> this is going to sound harsh, but God is, in in a certain breath says why do you think that your own life on earth and your suffering or enjoyment of that life is somehow more important than the larger story that i'm trying to tell here right my my favorite uh thing that that god says to job in that exchange is were you there when i ordered the stars right <laughs> i'm just like whoa <laughs> okay <laughs> right right so it's hard for us to really like tease out sure especially as um <laughs> especially as white heterosexual men in uh the united states of america mm -hmm. we are told that central to our story is not everyone else is not the people in our lives but us right right um so it's very tempting to read these ancient stories that are in a completely different context than our own mm -hmm. and ask these questions of why, you know, why, why would that, why would God do that? Why would, you know, why would that character do that? Right. And part of the reason, especially because these are stories from a specific time and place in history and culture is just that that's the way God works. Right, right. And I think, too, it just emphasizes the fact that we don't necessarily have a logical explanation for why God does what God does. Mm -hmm. You know, because, like, one of the things that I've come to, to, to realize about this whole story, too, is that um, I think... Uh, an unfortunate side effect of living in a very westernized 
scientific method uh, context is is that everything has to make logical sense in order for it to be true. Like A and B have to be whatever in order for C to be true. Right. And I, I just don't think you can fit that formula into reading something like Exodus. Like you said, it's an ancient text. It's an ancient story. And it doesn't necessarily line up with our logical way of thinking. Right. And that's, that's difficult, I think, for a Western mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to use this example um, delicately and say less with it than probably... Um, so some would enjoy one of my favorite movies uh, should not come as a surprise to you Jeff um, is the Lego movie Um, oh yeah yeah (laughs) Um, and spoiler alert maybe a little like spoiler alert button somewhere Um, if you haven't seen the Lego movie go stop listening to us and go watch that Um, (laughs) and then come back (laughs) yeah or go watch the second part I don't know um yeah so the lego movie um is building to the climax and the the prophetic character um essentially tells uh the main character emmet aka truth in the word hebrew what um (laughs) he tells um emmet the prophecy uh you know i made it up but it's true and that paradox we find I th- in life <laughs> mm. um, and in the stories that we tell ourselves and that we believe um, and I won't I'll, I'll let that be teased out over the course of our conversation but so often we get caught up on is this true or not right and often in getting caught up on is this true or not we miss the point of the story entirely right because i don't think the the emphasis i don't think the the biblical author's emphasis was to say you know this is this is true this is you know that's i don't think that's necessarily the point they're trying to make Mm -hmm. yeah and i think one of the things man you're just getting a lot of emails huh (laughs) um yeah i'm calling you out uh reverse say that again (laughs) i i think one of the things that we often need to remember to or let me let me put it this way one of the the interesting things i've heard about this this particular passage of of god hardening pharaoh's heart and and stuff like that one of the ways of reading it is like oh how cruel god is of like inflicting this on egypt and stuff like that (laughs) um this is the same pharaoh who slaughtered all the hebrew babies two and under so there's you have to again context of of the story but one of the things that i i heard that was very very interesting was that god did not amplify anything that wasn't already in pharaoh's heart so in, in other words like god hardening pharaoh's heart Pharaoh's heart wasn't soft towards the Israelites to begin with. Sure. So the, the idea that, that God, you know, took Pharaoh who was really, really chummy, chummy with the Israelites and then made him an enemy. That's just not true. 
Um, but it's again another way of, of thinking through the story of God is is amplifying what's already there, and that is a sourness, a bitterness, a, a, a prejudice against the Hebrew people. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would push even farther on on this. Um, but before I, I get there, I should say this is also another passage of scripture that gets brought up a lot in the question of, of free will and predestination. Right. Um, so what, what do you mean by that for, for anybody who doesn't, is not familiar with that? So just the quick crash course in free will versus predestination. Essentially the question is, do I have control? my decisions, my actions, are those things that I am doing with my own free will that I am choosing to do? Or is God pulling the, the strings behind the curtain? Am I a puppet um, where no matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter what I think or believe, all of my actions are predecided, predestined by God to end up in a certain um, outcome. Right. Right. And the frustrating thing about that question, at least I, I think I can speak for both you and me, because I think we've had this conversation before, because people get caught up like, oh, do we have free will or are we predestined? The answer is yes. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's both, yeah. which for some people, that's really difficult because they, they can't imagine a world where both exist in the same reality. Yeah. And but the, the, I mean, this is, again, this is a whole other episode, probably. But predestination and free will, that conversation, I don't know if I've ever heard it come up outside of salvation. Yeah, I, I agree. I haven't either. Um, which, uh, that in and of itself, I think, can clue you in at times to what the real intent behind that debate is right uh, that said pharaoh or god hardened pharaoh's heart example of predestination right pharaoh chooses to let the israelites go free will right Maybe? right free will because of the, the 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 impact god has on pharaoh's heart who knows um but <laughs> Uh, to, to, to circle back to pushing this, this even further, um, you know, we look at the biblical narrative and especially the Old Testament narrative. The characters are complex for sure. Yeah. But in that same vein, certain characters or certain groups of people uh, occupy kind of one-dimensional roles. So Egypt, for example, the, the nation of Egypt throughout the Old Testament often is just an enemy. Mm -hmm. They're evil. And you might meet an Egyptian who's like a good guy every now and again. But by and large, the rule throughout the biblical narratives that Egypt's evil. Um, don't mess with them. Don't mingle with them. They're evil. Right. Are they evil? Who knows? Who cares? They're evil. Right. And uh, I, w I would say too, like that would that point exactly. And I think we talked about this a little bit in Genesis too. 
is why it's it these details and context matter because solomon marries the daughter of pharaoh to form an alliance with egypt so there's that and then also i i would say that babylon also kind of occupies that that uh enemy that narrative enemy oh yeah uh, because even even in the book of revelation the very last book of the bible babylon is mentioned even though babylon had not existed for hundreds of years by that point you know shows you how ingrained in the story of the israelite people exile is yes um and i would say well would you agree with this or not would you say that israel is actually more defined by its the bad parts of its story versus the good like it's more defined by slavery in egypt and exile than it is for promised land and building of the temple that's a hard question um simply because the good and bad of that story is very much a coin um where israel at least the authorship remembers themselves through the hard times Mm -hmm. which is very much like a you know psychological trait of humans right we remember trauma better than we remember joy we remember i was able to recall the plagues better than the 12 (laughs) (laughs) yeah so ingrained in us we're like because think of like our monkey brains we're gonna remember where we were attacked so we don't go back to that place right we might not remember a tree where we found fruit yeah, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna sure, surely remember where, like, a panther almost ate us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, circling all the way back, right? Like, so, yeah, Israel itself remembers itself through the bad times more often, but even the good times, like, you have to evaluate. Oh, great! They built the temple. Okay, they used slave labor for the temple. Of a God that freed them from slavery. <laughs> like, like all the people, their promised land, they, they, they entered in and killed people who were living there already because it was, quote, their destiny to occupy this land. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Um, yeah. So do they remember the good times? Sure. Don't flip that coin over. <laughs> because it's it's full of the same of the same or similar if not the same trauma only they are the oppressors instead of the oppressed right and it's so easy to flip that script where it's like you know once you gain a little bit of power or influence or whatever then you end up doing the same things that were enacted upon you and that's what we see with israel yeah now um so getting back to to the the stories in Exodus, the the arcs of, of Exodus. Um, hold on, hold on. I still yeah. need to push back on the the Pharaoh bit. Oh sure, sure. All right, so I have a question for you. Okay, it's harder to see in like current Disney movies, but like think of like Snow White, okay, or Sleeping Beauty. Okay, why are the evil queen <laughs> or like Maleficent? Why are they evil? 
because we're told that they are. Because we're told that they are. Yeah. Evil, basically, because the story needs an evil character, yeah. right? Yeah. It well, it doesn't. As a storyteller myself, I can say that that this is the case for me. They don't need an evil character, but it makes the story more memorable and more compelling if there is a pro, uh, an antagonist in it. Yeah. I mean, we often ask ourselves, again, this question of, like, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? You can go through all the moral dilemmas. You can go through all the theological dilemmas. But from a literary perspective... Again, I mean, I drop this often, and I don't mean it in any kind of cynical way, but plot device, it moves the plot forward. And again, God's whole agenda in hardening Pharaoh's heart is so that the Egyptians realize who's in charge. Right. Yeah. And in order to prove that to the Egyptians, they need to see that their king, their Pharaoh, is not in charge. Right. And that is that actually is a perfect segue for the last plague, where the last plague is the 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 death of the firstborn, and by by the angel of death striking down Egyptian the Egyptian heir to the throne, it proves that point exactly that that God has power over the Egyptian people. Now this is where um, I think it's worth mentioning that this is again one of the defining moments in the Israelite story because this whole uh, plague of the, the angel of death coming in and killing off the firstborn is not just for Egyptians. It's also for, for anybody, for, for the Hebrew and the, and the, and the Egyptian. The, the thing that prevents it is, is if the Hebrews are to take the blood of a lamb and, and paint the, the doorposts of their house and then the angel of the, of the, the angel of death will pass over them. So this idea of Passover becomes a central celebration for the Jewish people going forward. I mean, it's one of the main festivals that they celebrate. And, and in fact, the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples is the Passover. So it is, it is still a, a story that defines the Jewish people as their, like that is their defining moment. Um, so the angel of death, the last plague is where we get the, the Passover festival, the Passover feast, the Passover event um, that's commemorated every single year, or at least in the later temple periods. Right. Um, so anyway, the point being, God strikes on the firstborn, and then Pharaoh says, get out of here, leave. Um, this is also where we get the story of the unleavened bread. Um, because the Egyptians or the, the Israelites don't have time to bake it and let it rise. Yeah. So they bake it flat and head out. So <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people leave Egypt. They're marching out. They, they're celebrating like, hey, we're free. We're free. Don't uh, forget, they plunder the Egyptians as well. They plunder the Egyptians, which is, oh, that's, yeah, again, another, <laughs> another video into itself. I think we need to circle back to Exodus and really dig into some of these these uh, issues. Um, but let's see. Not just in Exodus, the entire Bible. <laughs> right, right. Um, so after the the plague of the firstborn, they, they go and they're going to the Red Sea and they get to the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptians 
pursue them. Pharaoh pursues them with the chariots and they see the, the Israelites see them. They're like, they start complaining to Moses, like, why'd you bring us out here to die? Like we're, we're backed up between the sea and the, the Pharaoh's army. Like we're going to die. We're going to die. So God sends a pillar of fire to protect them. Moses strikes his, his staff into the ground. The, the waters of the Red Sea split. Mm-hmm. The Israelites walk through. Um, Moses goes the other side. Egyptians pursue him. Moses picks up a staff and then the walls of water collapse in. Kill Classic him. Bible story. Classic Bible story. Um, which but is finished the story. It kills the Egyptians. <laughs> right. So he kills the Egyptian army, again, proving that God has dominion over the one of the biggest military mites of that time. Um, so then they go off into the wilderness. And it doesn't take very long. In fact, it takes about three days for them to start complaining. Like, oh, why'd you bring us out here to die? Like, we don't have water. We don't have food. Like at least we, even though we were slaves in Egypt, we, we still had food and food in our bellies and a roof over our head. Like, why'd you bring us out into the wilderness to die? So the question, Jeremy, the meat to eat from. Right. So Jeremy, the, the question I have for the, the, the Red Sea and the giving of the law. Oh, sorry. They, they wander around. They go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the, to the top of the mountain. The, the presence of God descends on the mountain. It, it's described as a cloud overtaking the mountain. There's earthquakes and thunder and lightning and all, all this stuff. Moses is gone for 40 days. The Israelites are like, he's probably dead. Hey, Aaron, you should make us a god. Um, so they, they melt down the, the gold, which they plundered from the Egyptians, into a calf, and they start to worship it. Moses comes back down with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that God had written himself sees the the israelites dancing around this calf like what the heck guys throws it down chasm opens up swallows a bunch of israelites and then moses goes back up the mountain to get a second set comes down and my favorite one of my favorite stories about this is uh when he comes down he's glowing because he's been in the presence of god and yeah. the Israelites are just like hey can you put on a, a like a, a mask or something like you're you're like freaking us out yeah so i mean there's a lot to pick apart there yes um do you you have a question though like like, yes my question is why do you think israel complains so much oh i mean because they're humans (laughs) (laughs) yeah i complain so much why Why does anyone complain about anything Mm -hmm. humans the most agreeable person will complain you know, babies are—that's all they do. Yeah, that's yeah. their way of conveying that they need help or need attention. Right. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning too that, like, their complaining didn't come from a lack of care on God's part. Um, it came more from them not getting what they wanted. Um, simply because like I, I actually preached a sermon on this uh, a while back and in my research of this sermon I, I realized that from the moment God started uh, providing manna for them because basically what what happened in the in the story is, is that they would wake up in the morning and they they would look out outside their camp and there would be like this thin layer of what looked like frost and they would go out and it would be bread it was it was called manna which funny enough in Hebrew, translates as what is this 
So that's, that's one of my favorite tidbits of, of the Bible. But anyway, God's instruction was go out and collect all you need for the day and, and no more. Don't try to store it. And of course the Israelites are like, Oh, let's hoard it. Let's, let's store it. And then they would wake up the next day and it was all moldy and had maggots in it and stuff like that. So God was taking care of them and sustaining them with this manna day in, day out. And in, in the process of researching my sermon, I realized that that continues until the day they enter the promised land. So, so God sustains them with manna from heaven every single day they're in the wilderness for 40 years until they enter into the promised land, into the, the land of peanut butter, milk, and honey. Gross. How is it, by the way? That was a complete non sequitur. Um, <laughs> that says it all. Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's not, it's not bad, but it's not great. From your description, it sounds about as good as a peanut butter milk stout will be. Yeah, you, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to manna from heaven. Yeah, yeah, like the whole theme of God provides one day at a time. Jesus talks about that, you know. Today is not guaranteed. Yesterday is gone. God will provide for the, the birds of the air and the... Oh gosh, what is it, that verse? I don't know. What is it? Something in Matthew, probably Mark too. But God it, provides for the birds. And it, it basically says uh, the Lord provides for the birds, and they they don't need to store. They don't need to like scavenge. No. Like the Lord provides for them. And how much more are you loved than the birds? It's like Matthew twenty three something. Yeah, it's yeah somewhere there. Or not, and I'm just a heretic. I don't know. Um, I'm sure it's also flash the, the actual verse that it's there. Yeah, yeah. Right? Boom. Here. <laughs> Tom working wonders. Yep. Shout uh, out to Tom. Anyways, enough about that, dude. <laughs> um, the big dog Moses. They're not even Moses, man. Yeah, you know, God will provide. That's the whole thing that the Israelites, you know. It, again purely human right like mm-hmm. you know, fear it's a it's it's a fear you've you've said it well a number of times um it's the fear that you won't be provided for mm-hmm. it's the um it's what's referred to as the myth of scarcity yeah that one boom yeah myth of scarcity um yeah. Which, like, you're in the desert, like, you might have been slaves in Egypt, but, like, you don't know what's in the desert. You know what it's like being a slave in Egypt. You can, quote, handle it. Right, right. But, like, like, oh, you know, heaven forbid we, we trust in God. Um, yeah, so Israel has its issues, but they're all human issues. They're not, like, they're nothing special. I used to, like, talk a lot of smack. And I still do about like Israel, which is appropriate because like God talks smack about Israel. The prophets talk smack about Israel. Um, I, I would say that God and the prophets are maybe have a little bit more credibility to talk smack about Israel than you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we want to want to um, reflect even more, God and Israel 
within the story might be talking smack, but that's someone writing down <laughs> right. about right. Israel from a very unique perspective. It's it's almost like uh, those people who will like if there's like a fight going on, they'll like pull out their phone and record it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a terrible example. Wow. We'll just cut that out. Sure. Tom will probably cut out most of this anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, Israel complains in the in the desert in the wilderness because, of course, right. Of course, they're gonna complain in the wilderness, right? You would too. I would. Yeah, yeah. It's a human response. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning too that the the manna uh, comes every morning and they gather it and stuff like that, and then they're just like they start to complain more. They're like, "We don't have any meat. We need protein." So, my favorite response of God in the entire wilderness episode is God saying, "Like, oh, you want meat? I'm gonna give you so much meat that it's gonna come out of your ears." <laughs> so then god provides quail that just overruns the camp and like there's just quail everywhere i'll hunt these quails eat some quails and some manna. okay yeah so yeah god provides that's the, the long and short of the wilderness story along with some other stuff which right it's a short but it is worth mentioning the golden calf episode mm -hmm. um ancient near eastern so okay before I even get there, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The thing that Indiana Jones finds. Right, right, right. But like, what is it? Like, what, what's its function? Its function, from what I remember, is to be the, the well, are you talking about in the Exodus story? No, it, not in the Exodus story, because they don't have the Ark yet. Not yet. Um, you, are you talking about like later on in like the, the tabernacle and temple periods? So the, the Ark of the Covenant inside, it's a, it's a box that's overlaid with gold. It's very ornate. Um, it has uh, the Ten Commandments, some of the manna, right? Uh, from the wilderness and a couple of other things. But it, it goes into the Holy of Holies. It's it, the innermost part of the tabernacle and also the temple later. And it's supposed to be where the presence of God resides. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost like a footstool uh, type thing where, where the presence of God Yep, yep, yep. So, okay, yep. so I'm glad you said the word footstool and where the presence of God resides. Um, remind us of the overall makeup of the Ark of the Covenant. Just like exterior, what does it look like? So it's a box. Yeah. has a lid. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then it has uh, these two cherubim over it. And these two cherubim, uh, cherubim are a type of angel that if I'm remembering correctly, they have six wings and on the top of the arc, two wings are covering their feet, two wings are covering their eyes, and two wings are extended out uh, over the arc. Again, Tom, Tom, put, put a picture right, right, no, right, right up here, right up here of the Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant because in the research for that movie, they actually tried to replicate it as, as closely as possible to the biblical record. So, Check up right here, right here, Tom. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, so that's that's kind of what it looks like. Okay, it's it's made of gold, though, correct? It is not made of gold. It's made of wood, but it's overlaid with gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, it's gold. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, 
Yeah, it's gold. What are the Israelites? What are they asking him to make? A golden calf. Yeah. So we interpret this story as they're worshiping the calf. They're worshiping the golden calf. I'm so glad you brought this up. Go on, go on. Placing this story into its proper time and place in history and culture, they're not worshiping the calf. They're worshiping a god that they're inviting its presence to by crafting this 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 golden bovine. Yes. Um, which we again we miss. We miss. Yeah. And the Israelites miss because okay, check it out. They see all the chaos that's going on. They see the the thunder and the lightning and the clouds surrounding the mountain. Mm-hmm. But they're like, that looks scary. Let's encounter God in a way that we already know people encounter God. And that we're comfortable with. Correct. Because remember, the presence of God with the, the earthquake and the lightning and stuff like that, that scared them. Like mm-hmm. they did not want to approach the mountain. In fact, God told Moses, tell the Israelites, do not approach the mountain. Otherwise, if you do, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And they make this calf, again, just as a chair for God to, to, to take a seat on. Yes. And that is actually the, the, I think what is really needs to be emphasized in that story because, and the reason I'm glad you brought that up is because this is what I wrote arguably my best, actually, no, it was my best seminary paper on because Jeremy Smoke said so. Um, uh, Professor Smoke is a professor that both Jeremy and I had uh, in, Jeremy had him at UCLA and and at Fuller. Mm -hmm. And then I had him at Fuller. Shout out to Jeremy Smoke, the Smoke Monster. Oh, fantastic professor. Uh, but anyway, my final paper for Hebrew exegesis of Exodus, because I had to read Hebrew in, in uh, Exodus in Hebrew. My final paper was on the Golden Calf episode. And what I came to realize is, is that in the creation of the Golden Calf, they're not trying to replace God, mm-hmm. but they're trying to force God's presence on their terms as opposed to them approaching God on God's terms. Yeah. So. Which is truly unfortunate when you take a look at this narrative. They make their whole kind of livelihood around we need to have God um, conform to our understanding of God. Instead of us expanding our understanding, right, of God right. as God is, and what's really interesting too is is that again, this golden calf incident happens while Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. Right. the The first two commandments, uh, "I am the Lord your God; you shall have no other gods besides me." That's commandment number one. Commandment number two is, "You shall not fashion any idols in in the in, in my image." Mm-hmm. Um, so Israel. It's violating both one and two as God's writing those down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's just a, it's a funny thing to, to consider. Um, okay. So then we, we have the Red Sea, we have the giving of the law again, the, the Pentateuch, uh, sorry, not the Pentateuch, um, the Decalogue, the, the 10 commandments, uh, Pentateuch, Decalogue, lots of numbers, <laughs> the Decalogue <laughs> again, foundational for the Israelite people that what is what becomes their 
their code, their their law, their judicial system is right. rested on the Ten Commandments. Um, and from there, the rest of Exodus is dedicated to God's instructions for the tabernacle. Because again, God's presence has been in the burning bush with Moses. God's presence has been on the top of Mount Sinai, has been in the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But it has yet to be dwelling among the people. Yeah. So in this last 15 chapters of Exodus, we see God giving very, very specific instructions, like to the inch instructions yeah. for how this tabernacle, which is just a giant tent that the Israelites would, would place wherever they were wandering. Yeah. Um, very specific instructions for this tabernacle for the Israelites to follow. Um, so they, they set up the tabernacle, they set up the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant will eventually sit and the presence of God will dwell and, and all that stuff. But tacked onto that is also a lot of restrictions for what you can and can't do, what you uh, should and shouldn't eat, what you can and cannot do in order to cleanse yourself, um, and just all these laws of purification. So the, the question I have, this final question, Jeremy, is what's with all these restrictions and, and purification laws? Like, what's, what's the point of it? So. Again, another good question. Um, you know, the purpose, we, we miss it, I think, often again, because purification and ritual law, um, just way more ingrained in the ancient Near East at large. Mm -hmm. Then we, we have our own, you know, quasi purification and ritual things that we do yeah. even today. But um, we, especially in a Western Protestant upbringing, miss a lot of what the point of ritual purity is. Yes. And I think that we, like you said, we have a little bit of an idea, especially with the advent of a global pandemic. Like I remember early on some of the, the public service announcements focused specifically on wash your hands for two minutes, mm -hmm. like sing happy birthday twice to ensure that it, it, you clean your hands enough. So right. that in and of itself could fall into this understanding of a purification ritual. Yeah, it, it could. I think the big difference with that is that, you know, the, the reminder to wash your hands for two minutes in a COVID-19 world, that is concerned with, with physical health mm -hmm. uh, and well-being. Um, and there's, again, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there's certainly ritual purity that has to do with health and just kind of like fundamental, like, okay, if you eat this shellfish, you might die because that's a poisonous shellfish. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there is stuff like that. But like, when I say we have our own instances of, of ritual purity today, I, I think more so of like the, 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 how do I have phrased this? Um, uh icky side of evangelism <laughs> um 
you know, I think of purity culture, for example. Oh, absolutely. Purity rings, save yourself till you're married. Yeah. yeah. That. Which that is the type of ritual purity that I'm identifying. Interesting. Okay. Um, where it has less to do with, it has less to do with physical health and more to do with, with, uh, honestly, spiritual prowess. <laughs> yeah. Spiritual, moral, ethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, holier than thou ethics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, um, that's what you see in the Pharisees later on in the New Testament is like they prided themselves in their ability yeah. to remain pure. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, we say this a lot already, but like a whole other episode could be talked about just ritual purity and like purity right. culture and, and, you know, the, the underbelly of all of that. Right. Um, yeah, go, yeah, continue, continue. And just what we miss, especially today, is that everything is spiritual mm-hmm. for the Hebrew people, mm-hmm. both in the, specifically in the narrative, everything is spiritual in Israelite theology for, and, and Hebrew storytelling, um, whether or not the hearers or readers of these ancient texts in their ancient context thought everything was spiritual, mm-hmm. we certainly have an image of a lifestyle in the Bible that identifies everything as spiritual. Right. And to speak even more to that, I think we can see that. I mean, I, I say see that today, but it's really a choice in seeing it. Right. That everything is spiritual. Everything is connected. Everything um, is part of this this um, uh, unveiling of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these ritual purity laws in Exodus and later books of the Bible, um, you know, some have practical functions, sure, but it is still all deeply connected to this belief system that says we are inherently spiritual beings in a spiritual landscape. We're not, we're not just, random assortments of molecules in an earthly limbo before salvation. Right. right. That's never the story of the Bible. Right. And it's also like worth mentioning too, that it's not like the prohibitions on like eating pork and shellfish and stuff like that. It's not arbitrary. They, they serve purposes. Yeah. And often they have to do with set yourselves apart from the cultures around you. Yes which is a, a big thing of, that we'll definitely get into like with uh-huh. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh-huh. Um, but I think you, you bring up a really, really good point. And I think one of the things that I uh, keep coming back to about these purification laws is, is that they serve a purpose. Like they're not just a list of like, Oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. You have to do this, 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 you know, it's not, that's not the point. The point is the, the context and the, and the point being that God's presence is going to be among the people. 
And God's presence is so holy and pure that nothing sinful can, can possibly stand in the presence of God. So God is, is putting these, these restrictions and these purification laws in place so that the people of Israel can approach the presence of God. It's not so that it's not so much that God saying you have to do this to be worthy of my presence. He's saying you have to do this. Otherwise you're going to die from my presence, you know? So it's God inviting the Israelites into his own presence um, by these purification laws, by these things, by these restrictions, he's providing a way for them to experience the holiness of God uh, on God's terms instead of the golden calf right. right. in God's presence. Yeah. Otherwise. The, the, the too long didn't read version that I've heard before mm-hmm. is God isn't just concerned with his people at certain times the reason there are all these prohibitions and ritual purity laws is that God is interested in you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> that has its own nuance to tackle, but that's kind of that, that is an explanation for, you know, you know, what these rules and laws are for and why they're in place. Yeah. Yeah. So that is where the, the book of Exodus ends is the, the tabernacle, the purification laws, and it sets us up for uh, Leviticus, uh, which will be our episode for next time. Hey, we did it. We, we did one full book in, in an episode. Yeah. I mean, we skipped over a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> also, we didn't even barely touch on the fact that we think of Exodus, we think of the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt which is in the book of Exodus, but overwhelmingly almost is not the majority of right. the story. Right. Um, or, or I should say of the 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, the actual Exodus narrative is fewer than you think. Yes. In fact, the, the majority of the book has more to do with Israel wandering in the wilderness than it does with them coming out of Egypt. Having more to do with how to build the tabernacle. That's true, yes. More so than any of that. Yeah. So is it a book about Israel leaving um, Egypt? Yeah, kind of. Is it what it's talked about most in the book? No. (laughs) Right. And again, that's not even broaching the subject too of like, this is one of my favorite things to tell students whenever I teach Exodus, the fact that where they cross the Red Sea from, from that point in on the Sinai Peninsula, from that point to where the promised land is, is only about a seven day walk. Right. Um, but they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years, which again has to do with like Israel's disobedience to God and, and rebellion, yeah. all, all that stuff. But again, also, it, it also doesn't, bring into question like the historicity of any of the story. Right. Right. And I think going back to your point, the the majority of Exodus is focused again on God, God's presence being with his people mm-hmm. in the tabernacle. Yeah. So again, it kind of makes you question why, why is the emphasis always on cer- certain aspects of the story and not 
Um, all right, so time to, to get to our favorite stories um, of, of Exodus. And uh, to be honest, I, I think my favorite story is Exodus 3, uh, the burning bush, uh, Moses' interaction with the burning bush. And the reason I say that is going back to what we were talking about way at the beginning of the episode about the Prince of Egypt. Um, I actually really like how the Prince of Egypt portrayed the burning bush. And I actually watched... Uh, either listen to a podcast or watch a documentary, I couldn't remember which, about the making of the Prince of Egypt. And they said for the burning bush uh, um, scene, they took all the voices from everybody who was a part of the project and overlaid them. So everybody's voice was coming out of the burning bush at once. That's cool. Yeah. So I really like how that was portrayed. Um, I think that it, there's so much there. There's so much deep, theology and meaning of what's going on there in that burning bush narrative um because i think it's one of the very first times because again moses is the big dog moses is the is the character of the old testament is the character of the pentateuch Mm. and here at the burning bush we see him trying to look for and grasp at reasons why he can't do what god has asked him to do right um, so I just think it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story of God saying that doesn't matter I'm going to use you anyway. Mm-hmm. So, what about you? What's your favorite story? So I'm probably going to use these moments of favorite stories less so for like big heartfelt moments and more for just like absurd. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, of course, kind of out of left field. Um, I actually need to grab a Bible. So that I can actually um, do this. Oh wow! Whoa! Uh, confirmation Bible, straight up. Wow. Um, um, this is just me being loose. I should have done this earlier. Right. Um. Okay. So check it out. Moses is commissioned by God to go do this thing. Um, that's a that's an accurate description. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moses is like, oh no, I can't do that. God's like, no, nah, you're gonna do it. He's like, no, I, I stutter. Yeah. And then God's like, you're being dumb. Stop being dumb. Um, oh gosh. So glad you uh, okay 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 so your favorite story is in in exodus 3 mine's in exodus 4 um so moses has this divine encounter with 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 god with the with the divine right um he's convinced to go do this thing um and then in the very next chapter um Moses is on his way back to Egypt and on his way, Moses is with his wife um, and his kid, I believe. Um, And verse 24 through whatever reads this at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Ah, I know exactly what story this is. Nice. Nice. 
just let that sink in for those of you that have not read this story in the bible yeah god calls moses to himself says hey you're gonna be the guy you're my dude to go free israel Mm -hmm. and moses is like uh yeah okay immediately not not even he hasn't even gone gotten to egypt yet and it says god goes to kill moses (laughs) um but Sephora, his wife, mm-hmm. took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Mm. Surely well, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And then Moses meets Aaron to go talk some, talk uh, a little bit, and then um, they get to Egypt. But yeah, straight up. What is this? What is that? The Bible's weird, man. <laughs> it's a good story. The character I wish we could hear from uh, Moses' son in that <laughs> in that passage. Something like that, man. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it is time for last call. So, what what are some final thoughts you have on the Book of Exodus, Jeremy? Um, Exodus again. It's the the um, cornerstone is a good word for it. The, the capstone of the Pentateuch and with the exception maybe, and even then probably not, with the exception of like the exile stories right? is the most found, foundational book for Israel. Yeah. Uh, everything in the Hebrew Bible is filtered through this lens. You were once slaves in Egypt, but God saved you. Right. If you treat the foreigner among you um, well, because you were once slaves in a foreign land. Right. Um, everything is kind of matched up against the book of Exodus and built upon its foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's just... that that's just the case. And it's a story of God constantly making groups of people uncomfortable with how big of a God he truly is. Yeah. And that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I think for me, uh, one of the things that I really, really like about the, the Exodus narrative is just how of a central role it actually plays in the person of Jesus Um, because when Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, what he's talking about, he's, he's talking about the Decalogue. He's talking about the Exodus narrative. He's talking about the 10 commandments and, and Israel's inability to, to completely abide by them. So when Jesus says, I've come to, to, uh, fulfill the law, not accomplish it, he's doing what Israel had not been able to do. In fact, the temptation of Jesus at the very beginning of, of Mark's gospel. Um, and I'm using Mark just because I remember reading that last. So that's just what's freshest in my mind. But when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, it parallels and, and mirrors the 40 years that Israel was wandering around in the desert because they were wandering around because of their unfaithfulness and because of their disobedience. 
But Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and suffered similar things, hunger, uh, power, all, all the things that the Israelites gave into and, and were tempted by. Jesus um, refused to be tempted by them, thus fulfilling the law, thus doing what Israel had failed to do in the wilderness and showing that he truly is the embodiment, the fulfillment of the prophecy and the law and, and the Messiah that Israel needed. So I think without understanding the Exodus narrative, without knowing the, the background and the context, we miss a huge part of who Jesus claims to be later on in the Gospels. So I really appreciate that about Exodus is it gives us all the, the necessary foundation for understanding just how, like you were saying, God making people uncomfortable with just how big God is, Jesus making people uncomfortable for just how much of the fulfillment of the law he is. So, so yeah, uh, it's been, it's been a long episode. Thanks for, uh, for the, like one of you who's still with us watching. Um, as always, if you have any questions or comments or whatever, drop them in the comment section down below, uh, subscribe to our channel. If you want to hear a, a couple of brothers talk about theology and sip on some beer, um, we're, we're here to do that for you. Um, but that being said, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to our conversation. And next time, we will be studying, studying and diving into the, the wonderful, the quirky, the weird book of Leviticus. So join us next time as we dive into Leviticus. Uh, but until then, uh, my name's Jeff. I'm Jeremy. And this has been our grain offering. Thank you.